This is like, this is like, this is like gold. No physician wants to be known as the person that signs out bombs. Welcome to the third and final show of Undifferentiated. This is a show where we follow a complicated patient on their path through the emergency department as they make their way to a diagnosis. On our previous two shows, we've encountered an elderly gentleman who comes in with flank pain, abdominal pain, and some back pain. At this point, he's had an ultrasound of his aorta that didn't show any evidence of dissection or aneurysm. He's also had a CT scan of his abdomen that didn't show any kidney stones. There were no clear fractures of the back on that CT scan. No evidence of diverticulitis. But in the process of trying to get the patient up to go to the bathroom, his nurses noted that he wasn't able to walk. And not being able to walk was a big, loud siren that got his providers to go back and rethink parts of his differential diagnosis. On our last show, they had looked back at the CT scan and noted that he had a very large bladder without any evidence of outlet obstruction. The big thing that this brought up in their mind was that there could be a neurologic problem that's both causing him to not be able to walk and causing chronic urinary retention. So as the team goes to reevaluate the patient and puts in for an MRI scan of his back to evaluate for a clear cause of his neurologic dysfunction. We're going to talk to Dr. Overbeck about a patient that he had in the past who taught him a lot about the patient that we're taking care of now. Welcome to the final part of Undifferentiated. So I know this case triggered something that you had seen before and that you had been involved in before. Why don't we go back and talk about what happened at that point and kind of, we'll get to how that feeds into this case, but tell me what happened back in the past. An elderly woman with Seemingly kidney stone pain, no history of kidney stones, but left flank and left lower quadrant pain was seen by several providers, including myself, and we continued to evaluate the person for low back pain, and she simply wasn't getting better, and on subsequent revisits, it was discovered she had an epidural abscess, and that was really a touchstone moment for me because no one was more expert on epidural abscess in our practice at that point than I was. And this case, again, the winding path to finding the diagnosis, I think is classic for epidural abscess. We think about the typical things we're trained to think about, like abdominal aortic dissection or AAA or kidney stone, kidney infection. But in this situation, that kind of slowly unwinding mystery of the epidural abscess it really struck a note with me and reminded me all too clearly of previous cases. So it sounds like in the in the case before with, with the elderly woman that you were taking care of, that multiple people saw her. When you look back on that case, what was the key for people to change their thought pattern where they started to look beyond the more common things in the differential? Well, the woman that I had seen had been evaluated for septic arthritis of the hip, ureteral stones, pyelonephritis, ischemic bowel, chronic mechanical back pain, and then not being able to tolerate her pain medicines where she was offered antiemetics, seen by her family doctor, multiple emergency providers. And unfortunately, as in many of these cases, the thing that changed the thinking of the physicians was her neurologic deficits. 
And in her case, what was it that changed that clued people in? So she was seen by multiple doctors over the course of seven to 10 days with the same complaints or evolving complaints without any diagnostic answer during that time period. She finally presented to the emergency department with nausea and vomiting and a low-grade temperature layered on top of her previous kind of left hip complaints. She was admitted to the hospital for what was presumed to be an ileus. Again, she had a negative CT scan of her belly with contrast. And while she was in the hospital, the overnight nurse noticed that she was complaining of weakness in both of her legs, and she couldn't get up unsupported. So those neurologic complaints of not being able to walk was really something in her situation that signaled finally and clearly what the underlying process was. When you went back and reviewed the case, did she have any particular risk factors for developing an epidural abscess that may have been seen earlier, or did this kind of come on out of the blue? Well, oftentimes when we look back on these cases, we can see some hint. She was pre-diabetic but had no back instrumentation or injections. She had no midline pain on numerous providers' evaluations and no neurologic deficits for the first several visits. Oftentimes, these people will be immune-suppressed or have evidence of other infections elsewhere in their body. They'll complain of incontinence or urinary retention, but really none of those that we could elicit from the previous chart or even when I spoke with her seem to be going on. And I think this just illustrates part of why this is such a tough job and part of why this is such a hard diagnosis to make, part of why seeing a lot of patients and having a lot of experience gives your brain the opportunity to key in on specific features of particular cases that a less experienced physician might not pick up. No, I think that's exactly right. When you're in the situation where you've seen something before, hopefully that inner voice is now louder and able to convince you that a reexamination of the facts, a reevaluation of the patient a reorientation of your diagnostic journey needs to take place. So the team in our story has done exactly that. They thought they had a cause of the patient's pain, but the data that they got back wasn't backing up what they thought was going on. And coupled with the changes in the patient's neurologic condition, they had to go back and think about things that they weren't thinking about when they started. And in this case, the MRI comes back, the radiologist hasn't read it yet, but they're flipping through the images. And on T2 imaging, they notice that there's some areas in the spine and in the spinal canal that are lighting up more than the other areas around them. So this gives them some idea that there's an infectious process that's causing inflammation in these areas. This is obviously an extremely concerning finding. And if there's an infection around the spine, we need to know how to treat it. And so the first person we're going to talk to is an infectious disease physician who concentrates on orthopedic injuries. Hi, I'm Heather Young. I'm an infectious disease physician at Denver Health. Thank you for having me. If somebody comes into our emergency department yeah. and they have midline tenderness to palpation, and we are thinking that there's something actually going in on the, somewhere within the spinal column, what are the major infectious processes we need to evaluate? Sure. So there's a number of different infections that can occur in the uh, vertebral bodies, including osteomyelitis septic arthritis of the facet joints, epidural abscess. Uh, you can even get a subdural abscess, which are pretty uncommon. 
What patient characteristics tend to raise concerns that those processes are going on? Patients with diabetes are certainly more likely to get spinal infections. Also, patients who have alcoholism or HIV are also more likely to get spinal infections. There's certainly some social factors that make people at higher risk of that too. Those might include IV drug use, trauma, including uh, a remote motor vehicle accident, degenerative joint disease of the spine. That's great. That's interesting. Especially the the old motor vehicle accident. Do you know how that, does that just like give micro trauma that sets up places for infection to take over? Yeah, I don't think anybody knows exactly, but certainly old's trauma can predispose patients to GGID and then that in turn puts them at risk for infections because the bone is slightly abnormal in that area. In emergency medicine, we often regard a triad of symptoms or signs as classic for epidural abscess. That is fever, midline back tenderness, and neurologic deficits. Is that something you find useful clinically when you're approaching these patients? When those are present, that classic triad is certainly helpful, but unfortunately, it's just not present in the majority of patients. There are four stages of epidural abscess, and in the first two stages, those are largely not present. In stage one, patients may generally just have back pain and might not have any systemic symptoms and definitely don't have any neurologic deficits. In stage two, patients may have the beginning of nerve root compression and have some radicular pains. Stage 3 is characterized by motor weakness, sensory deficits, and bladder or bowel dysfunction. And that's when you might start seeing fever and the classic triad. And then in stage 4, unfortunately, patients may progress to paralysis. And patients can move through these different stages in all different time periods. Some patients may move through them in just a few hours, and others may take months. So that classic triad really is late, if at all present, and we aim to try and provide the diagnosis before those symptoms occur. Correct. When we're looking at specific bugs that tend to cause epidural abscesses or discitis or other infections within the spinal column, what are, what are we usually looking at? Staph aureus is the most common to cause vertebral infections. It causes about two-thirds of vertebral infections. Other bacteria that can cause epidural infections include coagulase-negative staph, This is more common, particularly in patients who have had previous surgery in that area. E. coli can also cause epidural abscesses, and uh, those are more common in patients who have had recent UTIs. Other pathogens that can cause epidural abscesses might include tuberculosis in the right patient or particular types of fungi. Who are the patients that are at the greatest risk for fungal infections? Immunocompromised patients or those who have had recent instrumentation or injections are probably the ones who are most at risk for fungi. There was a large outbreak just about two years ago in patients who had steroid injections that were contaminated with fungi. In the United States, who do we see that gets tuberculosis in general? The majority of people with tuberculosis in the United States are those who are foreign-born. We also hear that there's other risk factors like being in jail or or living out on the streets. Are are those actually true risk factors or are those more kind of urban legend risk factors? They are true risk factors. County jails and local jails are really not big risk factors for tuberculosis, although larger Department of Correction facilities can be a risk factor for TB, just because the air circulation within those facilities is pretty poor. So when we're choosing antibiotics for somebody who has an epidural abscess, what are our big considerations? You certainly want to cover the most common pathogens. Again, those would include staph aureus, coagulase-negative staphylococcus, and also E. coli. 
You need to look at your local susceptibility information, particularly for coverage of gram-negative organisms. If you have a lot of resistance in your gram-negative organisms, then potentially you want to choose an antibiotic that's fairly broad. My choice for epidural abscesses is vancomycin plus ceftriaxone. I might choose cefepime in a patient if I'm uh, particularly worried about pseudomonas, but for the majority of patients, I would probably choose vancomycin and ceftriaxone. So if I'm in the emergency department and I want to start antibiotics, does it complicate the picture downstream when you do become involved in these patients with epidural abscess? It certainly can cloud the picture. We want to make sure that the right samples are sent so that we have the best opportunity to determine which pathogen is causing this infection. So the best samples for you to send from the emergency department would include blood cultures. IR-directed aspiration is also an excellent way to try to find the causative organism. An early neurosurgical or orthopedic spinal consultation is often very helpful as well, particularly for patients who have neurologic deficits. Early intervention on these patients can really save their neurologic outcome later on. When we're making a decision on when to start antibiotics on somebody, how important is it to get those samples and what kind of time frame do we have before we absolutely need to get the antibiotics on board? If there's any neurologic compromise, I would start the antibiotics right after blood cultures are drawn. If there's no neurologic compromise and the patient does not have sepsis, then I would wait until an IR-guided aspiration can be performed. One of the impacts that this infection can have on people's lives is how long they need to take antibiotics for and what their treatment's going to look like long-term. So can you kind of paint a picture for us of what the duration of the antibiotics are, are for patients and what their life is going to be like as they transition home from the hospital? Most patients would be treated with intravenous antibiotics. In order to get these, they would have a PICC line or a HONE line placed. At our facility, we teach patients to administer IV antibiotics to themselves in most cases. Other patients may need to go to a skilled nursing facility or attend an infusion center daily for their antibiotics. It is also possible to treat these infections with oral antibiotics pending their susceptibility. Some bacteria, such as E. coli, are extremely susceptible to quinolones, and quinolones get excellent bone as well as epidural penetration. Generally, we treat these infections for approximately six to eight weeks. Around six weeks, we take a repeat MRI in order to determine whether the abscess is resolved, and then we extend treatment if abscess is still present. So anecdotally, i found that patients' back pain resolves or improves greatly in usually approximately three weeks into their treatment. Patients who have had operative intervention due to neurologic deficits can expect to usually see some improvement in their neurologic function, although not everybody may see a full improvement in their neurologic function. So when we're evaluating somebody who we suspect has an epidural abscess, what is the appropriate imaging modality? MRI with gadolinium is the best imaging modality to diagnose an epidural abscess. If gadolinium is not given, you can miss fluid collections. Also, with CAT scan, it's not particularly sensitive to diagnose epidural abscess. One study that you would certainly want to avoid in a patient with a suspected epidural abscess is a lumbar puncture. CSF cultures are rarely positive in epidural abscesses, and they're generally positive when blood cultures are positive, so they really don't give you extra yield over blood cultures. In addition, if you place a needle through an epidural abscess, you have the possibility of causing an iatrogenic meningitis. And that's bad, correct? <laughs> 
Most definitely. Okay. All right. <laughs> the next question that we're going to discuss is when should we put pressure on our spinal surgeons to be more aggressive with their care? I think that one of your surgeons should be performing a consult for any patient with an epidural abscess, particularly those who have any type of neurologic deficit. In practice, most neurosurgeons or orthopedic spine surgeons will not operate on patients unless they have neurologic deficits or unless they have a smaller area that can easily be intervened upon. For patients who have extremely large epidural abscesses that span several different vertebrae level, sometimes the surgery to decompress the area can be more morbid than the infectious process itself. And in those cases, what tends to be the management? Our surgical counterparts tend to follow these patients very carefully and very closely for the development of any neurologic symptoms. And as an infectious disease physician, I treat them aggressively with antibiotics. If any neurologic symptoms occur, then our neurosurgical or orthopedic spine colleagues generally take these patients to the operating room pretty promptly. Do things like inflammatory markers, sed rates, and CRPs tend to play into your decision process? No, I really don't look at the ESR and the CRP in terms of my decision process. I find them helpful to follow the clinical course of patients. Generally, a CRP will decrease as we give antibiotics, but you can also follow the patient's physical exam and their history of telling you that their pain is much better. And curiously, leukocytosis is not the mainstay or cornerstone of your management decisions. No, leukocytosis isn't that helpful either. What about procalcitonin studies? Procalcitonin has shown some promise in being a predictor of infection. I'm not aware of its use in spinal epidural abscesses. Yeah, that's all I have to say. We've done a study on it in, for pulmonary infections and sepsis, but I don't know about it for epidural abscesses, how useful it is. Well, Dr. Young, thank you very much for being here today. We appreciate your time. Oh, this was great. So while we were talking to Dr. Young, the read comes back on the MRI and it demonstrates an epidural abscess. The location of the epidural abscess doesn't surprise Dr. Overbeck at all. And looking back, given the patient's distribution of pain, it's really in that L1, L2 distribution, kind of the iliohypogastric region over the left anterior abdomen, right down by the inguinal crease. You can trace that neuropathic pain back and find out what level of the spine is involved. And that actually proved to be correct after the MRI results came back. So now we know what's causing our patient's pain. He has an abscess in the epidural space that's pushing onto his spinal cord that's both causing him to lose his ability to walk and it's also causing his bladder dysfunction. Now with that diagnosis in hand, the people that need to be taking care of him are our neurosurgery colleagues. We're extremely lucky to work with some great neurosurgeons in our training program, and we have one of the chief residents with us today to talk about this particular case. I'm Dusty Richardson. I'm the chief resident and spine fellow here in neurosurgery at the University of Colorado. It's my seventh year of training. When you see a patient who has back pain and focal neurologic deficits, what are the emergent conditions that kind of come to your mind that we need to make sure that we evaluate? Really, any patient that has a neurologic deficit in my mind, represents an emergency. And I think the main questions are ones of etiology. So is this uh, neurologic deficit from a fracture? Is it from an infection? Is it from a tumor? Is it from some sort of problem that's causing structural instability to the spine? So 
in terms of treating the patient emergently, really getting a diagnosis and getting a handle on what's going on is the most important thing. And then determining where you go from there. Uh, a lot of the, the newer imaging modalities like MRI, we call them newer if you read the textbooks and the papers. They still refer to MRI as a newer imaging modality, though I, in my medical training I've never been without it. But uh, it really has simplified the process of determining the cause of a neurologic deficit, especially when it's related to spine disease. We asked Dr. Richardson if he goes directly to MRI when a patient comes in with a concerning back pain story. So that's, that's not usually where I start. So okay. uh, in a patient with neurologic deficit, especially if someone's had prior surgery before, the place I would start is, is simply with a plain x-ray of the spine. A lot of times you get much better hardware evaluation. You get an idea for alignment. It kind of gives you a 10,000-foot you know, view of what's going on in the spine. It's simple. It's easy. It's very low risk to the patient. And uh, in many circumstances, our post-operative patients with hardware in place only have a plain film. So you have a comparison film to look at from previous imaging. That gives you a very good idea starting off what you're dealing with and where you need to go in terms of imaging modalities and work up from there. In many cases, patients with prior hardware in place, especially if they've had extensive spinal fusions, do have adjacent level degeneration. And because of a, either a disruption in, in what's called their essentially their sagittal balance or, or how their their head and shoulders sits above their pelvis when, when standing upright, uh, also known as the sagittal vertical axis or sagittal vertebral axis, if that's off in any way, you, you do create uh, a propensity to have fractures or degeneration at the adjacent levels, especially the level above. So patients who've been fused, for example, from T10 to the pelvis, which is not uncommon to see these days, a lot of times we'll have a breakdown at T910. And it doesn't, in most cases, represent an acute condition, but is a condition that happens slowly over time. And we're talking, you know, six, eight months post-op, we start to see patients having a kyphotic deformity above the fusion construct. So uh, a plain film really does get you a view of what's going on there. You know, if you, if you start to see adjacent segment degeneration, it'll lead you down a different pathway, for example, than if you see stable hardware positioning and nothing on a plain film. And that pathway, the, the big differentiation there would be more to like CT to look more at uh, structural changes versus MRI for infectious? Yeah. So um, if you, you know, for example, if you had a patient with hardware in place and your x-ray shows that you have adjacent level degeneration, you, you have a, a pathway to head down there where you would look then at a CT and look for ongoing signs of bony instability. In cases of neurologic deficit, you'd still get an MRI. In, in those cases. And in, and in most cases of neurologic deficit, the, the truth is that most patients end up getting a plain film, a CT, and an MRI. But it can guide your um, whether or not, for example, you give the patient contrast. A patient, for example, that has adjacent segment degeneration above the level of a fusion construct is not someone who's otherwise afebrile, for example, would not likely get uh, IV gadolinium when you get the MRI because most likely this is from a compressive pathology and uh, glacial instability versus someone who comes in with stable hardware positioning who has maybe a, a slight elevation in their white count, maybe a low-grade fever. You're not quite sure what's going on. You know, the plain x-ray looks stable. In that case, you would be looking for an infection. Is there a time period after you've had the surgery where the risk of infection goes down? Like if you go out a year 
does your risk of infection go down at that point, or is do you always have a higher risk of infection once the hardware is in place? Hard question to answer, I suppose. Uh, certainly, your risk of an infection of or of finding a postoperative infection is is higher in the immediate postoperative period, and I would say within the first six to eight weeks. In general, most postoperative infections manifest in that time period. Could you have a very indolent, slow-growing infection a year out? Sure, you can. But again, most most infections we find within the first six to eight weeks postoperatively. If we have a patient that we have a high concern for infection, how important is it to get antibiotics on quickly, or is it more important to get them to the OR, get samples of, of the uh, fluid, and then start antibiotics? How do we stage that? Yeah, so it kind of depends on, on the clinical scenario. So if you um, have a patient, for example, with osteomyelitis and discitis, it's not necessarily an emergency to get the patient on, on any sort of antibiotics. Really, the priority in those cases, especially where a patient appears to be neurologically stable but has primarily back pain, even in the setting of you know, compression deformities or erosive deformities from the infection, you really your priority in those cases, get a sample of your uh, infectious agent and you know, define your sensitivities to antibiotics before putting the patient on antibiotics. And in, in some cases, we'll delay for a, a couple of days getting blood cultures, getting IR biopsies before we proceed to give the patient antibiotics. And then if it's an epidural abscess, does that change the progression or the, the staging at that point? In general, epidural abscesses, you can get an infectious agent in blood cultures about 60% of the time. In epidural abscesses are, are fairly heterogeneous. So if it's coming from, for example, adjacent spread from an osteomyelitis discitis, which happens um, with regular frequency, and the patient has only pain, only back pain, but no, for example, radicular pain, no neurologic deficit, that's something that you would probably want to wait on. It also depends on where these things are located. So an epidural abscess in the cervical or thoracic spine where you're dealing with spinal cord is a lot more concerning than an epidural abscess for example, you know, in the low or mid lumbar spine, in those locations, you're dealing with nerve roots rather than spinal cords. So it's something you can sit on, you can wait for longer. So in general, the priority is protection of the patient's neurologic function. And we know that in evacuation of these abscesses, we can get an infectious agent 90% of the time when you do surgery, but it's still, it's still not 100% of the time. So really our priority is to protect the neurologic function. In most cases, if a patient is shown to be neurologically declining, we'll take them to the OR quickly. And in that case, we're going to get an agent right away. So for example, if a patient comes in to the emergency department with neurologic decline, is going to go to the OR emergently, we'll get the infectious agent really pretty quickly in most cases. Unless they're showing signs of hemodynamic instability or over sepsis, my initial reaction is to delay on antibiotics until we have an infection. With MRI these days, most of the time we're getting a diagnosis early. So we really think about epidural abscess in four stages, and the first one is just back pain. And that, in, in, in a lot of cases nowadays, that's where we're catching things. It used to be in, in a lot of the older literature that they weren't catching epidural abscess until the development of a neurologic deficit. So in that case, you're already down a surgical pathway. Some of the newer literature coming out is showing that in a select group of patients, you can treat with just antibiotics, but in, in those cases, you want to have 
a very good handle on who the patient is, how reliable they are, what their comorbidities are, their white count, you know, make sure they're not septic. There's a, really an algorithm you have to go through to make sure that those patients meet non-operative criteria. Who are the high-risk patients for developing epidural abscess? And like, what really keys you off when somebody comes in that this is somebody who could have that condition? In general, uh, patients who have risk factors for epidural abscess are those with diabetes, IV drug users, certainly patients who've had a spinal procedure, either an epidural steroid injection, prior surgery, or even a prior trauma, tend to be at risk for development of epidural abscess. Patients can also have epidural abscess from contiguous spread. So the spinal nerve roots are contiguous with the retroperitoneum. So retroperitoneal abscesses, retroperitoneal infections can also spread and track along nerve roots through the intervertebral foramen and cause epidural abscess as well. So it's something that if you're dealing with a mediastinal or a retroperitoneal uh, infection, you got to watch out for if the patient starts to develop any sort of neurologic deficit. Dusty, would you suggest that your colleagues in the emergency room have a frank discussion with you before starting antibiotics? I think a call about the antibiotics is a good idea because I think we'll have a little better handle. Usually by the time you guys give us a call, we've got some imaging, we have a diagnosis, and at that point, we can evaluate whether or not we think this patient's going to meet operative versus non-operative criteria, whether or not we think the likelihood of getting cultures is going to be high. And so... I think a, a discussion with, with the neurosurgeon is, is a good idea or, or with your orthopedic spine surgeon is a good idea before you start antibiotics. And in basic terms, I guess, so that we can all understand it, what's your surgical approach to, say, a lumbar epidural abscess that you're going to go in, you know you need to intervene on? Let's say, for example, you see the enhancement on the MRI at the L2, L3 region. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me kind of what your approach is and, and what you see when you get down to the abscess? Sure. So um, abscesses really evolve over time. So in general, most abscesses are dorsal. So you can access these pretty easily with just a, a dorsal approach, so a dorsal midline approach and a laminectomy. Um, there's people who advocate for just doing uh, little, little laminotomies. And some people have even described threading a catheter up and down in the epidural space and washing that space out with, uh, with an antibiotic irrigation. Uh, in most cases, I would say patients get a laminectomy. We leave the joints intact to help preserve stability. And in early infection, most of the time what we find is a purulent material. I mean, it, it's pus in the epidural space along with some uh, usually inflammatory fat. The epidural space, especially in the lumbar spine dorsally, is filled uh, with a lot of fat. And a lot of times that fat becomes inflammatory and you see that inflammation in addition to the pus. In later infections, a lot of times what you find is just a granulomatous material, which is kind of a, just a sticky, almost scar, and it sticks to the dura. It can look very similar to dura, and so sometimes you have to get brave and uh, stick an instrument through it to see really what it is. The other option is to get an ultrasound and, and see if you're dealing with multiple loculations, as can happen later on. Uh, when you're operating. And specifically in these procedures, it's implied that you're not penetrating the dura. You want to maintain that uh, barrier. Correct. Yeah, we we absolutely do not want to go through the dura. That changes the patient's risk profile from an epidural abscess to potentially one of intradural infection. So uh, putting them at, at higher risk, at least theoretically, for arachnoiditis, for subdural abscess, which, which are extraordinarily rare, but but which do happen. 
and meningitis. So if we can maintain the dura in these cases, then that's absolutely the, the desired approach there. And when you follow these patients up, I don't know if they go to a skilled nursing facility for recovery uh, for some period of time, but you see them over a series of weeks, I, I assume, after their surgery. How is their progression? Maybe it's variable, but can you give us kind of a, a best-case scenario in a patient you'd like to see improve on, on what kind of time frame? Yeah, so the best-case scenario is that we find the patient with just back pain, find them early. If we deem uh, that uh, neurosurgical intervention is, is required, that patient is taken urgently to the operating room. I will say, you know, I've, I've, I've talked here about non-operative management, but in the great majority of cases, most neurosurgeons will advocate for operative evacuation of an epidural abscess, and that, that is really the gold standard. So early identification, early evacuation before the patient has a neurologic deficit is really the, the desired situation. There have been several studies that have looked at medical management prior to operative intervention. When the patients start to get neurologic deficits, you really have to act quickly it can put them at risk of uh, venous thrombophlebitis around the spinal cord and spinal cord infarction. So really finding these early and getting them evacuated leads to far better outcomes versus patients that don't. In a patient who has an epidural abscess that we find early that gets evacuated, a lot of times their, their pain is dramatically improved once you evacuate the abscess. You get them treated. And in reliable patients, many times they go home with a PICC line and we follow them up six weeks later. They see the infectious disease clinic usually more frequently than they see us just for guidance on antibiotic treatment. But we, we, we continue to follow them. Patients with an osteomyelitis discitis, in many cases, they will develop a slow instability over time. And, and in some cases, we have to intervene later on once the infection is cleared. In patients who uh, have neurologic deficit, certainly if we can intervene quickly, that's the that's the desired time frame. Quickly, I mean uh, usually less than 24 hours. Those patients tend to have better motor outcomes if we can get to them quicker. In patients who, for example, have been already paralyzed for 24, 48, 72 hours, those patients have a, an abysmal prognosis in terms of neurologic recovery. So the key to this is early identification early surgical intervention or early treatment if they meet those criteria with antibiotics and, of course, identification of the organism. We'd like to thank Dr. Richardson for taking the time to talk to us about his process of managing patients who have epidural abscesses. Neurosurgeons have an incredibly busy schedule, and he was gracious enough to give us some of his time to help educate us on his thought process of treating these patients. So at this point, our patient has a diagnosis. They have an epidural abscess and they need to be admitted to the hospital so that they can have surgical and medical management of their condition. Our patient has taken a long and winding course through the emergency department. He was evaluated for kidney stones, for urinary tract infections. At one point, he wasn't able to walk and his entire evaluation in the emergency department changed at that point. He's had multiple handoffs and now he has a diagnosis He's no longer undifferentiated, and he's coming into the hospital to get the care that he needs. We'd like to thank you for taking time to listen to Undifferentiated. We hope you enjoyed it and learned some things along the way. I'd like to thank all the people that helped put this show together. 
That includes our experts, Dr. Dusty Richardson, Dr. John Kendall, Dr. Heather Young, Dr. Wilson Molina, Dr. Courtney Smalley, and Dr. Elizabeth D. It was great being able to tap into their expertise to teach us all how to be better emergency physicians. The show was produced by Spencer Tomberg and Michael Overbeck. Editing was done by Spencer Tomberg with post-production help from Terry Smith. And music was done by Spencer Tomberg as well. We have a challenging and exciting job, and we hope that this helps you take care of more people that come in when they're undifferentiated.